First, though, we are following up on something we talked about earlier this week. We were joined by the BC Civil Liberties Association. They had concerns about a motion that was coming to Vancouver City Council having to do with amplification devices and when they are used in public. This motion was debated yesterday. Take a quick listen to this quote, this clip from the Chief License Inspector with the City of Vancouver. The city received several complaints about the use of voice amplification uh, on uh, public land, on public city streets. Further, the city routinely receives complaints about the unapproved use of amplified devices on city streets. Uh, this prompted staff to review the city's current regulations with respect to use of voice and sound amplification devices in public spaces and also to review the enforcement mechanisms. Joining me now to talk about what happened at Council is NPA Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, good afternoon, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, so what happened? I listened to part of the back and forth, but what happened with this motion? So council had a report from staff on the floor to consider that came forward as uh, Catherine Holm, our license inspector, said in response to um, the really abhorrent and repulsive um, incidents last summer in the West End with the homophobic preaching. Um, and that was certainly a concern to be addressed but also um, dealing with ongoing noise complaints and issues with respect to amplified devices that are used in the city of Vancouver. And what got me a little bit, and uh, that, that it came from that case, which I think most people, if not everybody, will remember the, the hate speech coming from, the very hateful speech coming from the street preacher. He was on that corner in the West End. Uh, there was an altercation with a local resident who ended up being injured. But what confused me a little bit in listening to the motion being addressed and the conversation about the motion, was council dealing with hate speech or was council dealing with noise violations? So this is a really important distinction, and that's why how it went down at council yesterday was so disappointing, um, because hate speech is something that is federally defined and regulated, and it's not within the purview of a municipality in the city of Vancouver. Um, and we had advice from city legal staff that really clearly, in my, from my perspective, outlined that distinction. And they said that the tools the city has is with respect to noise. And our current noise bylaw, bylaw regulates sort of the volume of noise in terms of decibel levels. But it didn't, doesn't, for example, prohibit the use of amplification devices. And so what we had on um, proposed from staff was to um, prohibit those devices unless they're permitted. Um, somebody's a you know, bona fide busker in the city of Vancouver, they're having an event, something of that nature, all of that could still continue. Um, but uh, they suggested prohibiting devices and having the ability to issue tickets or to seize those devices in really problematic situations like the homophobic preacher last summer. Right. So a lot of time was spent talking about something that is not even under the city's jurisdiction. Well, certainly the use of amplification and noises. And I think um, the challenge came forth from the community and they were very concerned last year with criticizing the city of Vancouver um, and the VPD for not taking action on that. But there weren't tools available. So what we had here is an actual tool that the city could put in place to address those problematic situations. So you can't stop somebody. Um, Hate speech is a very difficult line to prove. And as reprehensible and abhorrent as the commentary from that individual was, um, you couldn't necessarily stop him, but you could, if you had this bylaw amendment in place, have taken away that amplification device that made it really intolerable for a lot of people and really extended the impact of that over a number of days and, and literally could be heard for blocks. So by council not choosing not to pass that report yesterday, we do not have that new tool in our toolkit.
Right. So it would have, and again, so it wouldn't have stopped him. It would have, st- he could have still, if he wanted to, he could st- stand there on the corner and scream and yell. But what he couldn't do if counsel had adopted this was couldn't do it through a microphone. Correct. Uh, one of the issues that was brought up, or I know there were questions asked about if the city took this, uh, the, took this route and went to, to banning amplification devices, would that mean somebody who was protesting or having a parade and had a megaphone or had an amp, could, would it be up to the jurisdiction of bylaw or police? Could they then take those devices away? So if, and this is a really important distinction, the right to protest is is well enshrined in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Section 1 of that federally. Um, So the city cannot, um, nor can the BPD, shut down a protest or or preclude people's right to protest. If, however, they were using amplification devices and they hadn't been permitted for that, then they could ticket them. Or if it was left on a city street or sidewalk, they could confiscate that amplification equipment. Right. And as it stands now, and I know this came up as a question as well, uh, and you talked about uh, legitimate buskers. What are the rules when it comes to standing on a city street or standing on public property in the city of Vancouver and using an ampli- amplification device? So we have, a, we have had for quite some time now, a number of years in the city of Vancouver, a permitting process for buskers um, who are issued permits so that, uh, you know, they can share squares and, you know, public spaces, popular places to be. Um, and that process works quite well, and they regularly apply for those, and there would not have been any change to that program. But it would have been... So So right now, I, I'm, I'm just thinking of an example, and I, I actually played some of this audio on the show when we were talking about noise a few weeks ago. It was on the seawall, and a gentleman had set up an amp, and he was singing, and he was playing guitar, and he was, he was asking for money. And while some people were clearly annoyed by this, other people started dancing and thought it was great, and they loved the music. So in a scenario like that, would it be complaint-driven? If somebody called the city with a complaint, they would be able to shut that down? And would this bylaw have changed that? So if he had a permit, if he was a busker with a permit, he'd be allowed to continue to be there. Um, If he didn't have a permit and somebody complained, then yes, it would be enforcement by complaint. And they would have the ability to, I mean, he could still continue to do it, but not to use the amplifier. Uh, so the uh, motion didn't go ahead. You put out uh, on Twitter, uh, this is, this is uh, like sending staff on on a goose chase to work on another project. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, so what happened is there was a referral motion from a counselor to send this back to staff um, for more consideration and to look at actually including a brand new um, potential ability to have a field permit system. So, you know, think of having bylaw officers that roving out in the field um, that could permit spontaneous and amplified protest. And I think this was in response to the civil liberties concerns that were raised. But in my mind, um, number one, um, that would be a, a new cost in the middle of a pandemic. Probably impractical to have, you know, bylaw officers, we don't have enough of them now, available at the ready to, you know, you know, pop out at a moment's notice and sort of spontaneously permit a protester if they want to use an amplifier. To me, that's just not practical. Um, it doesn't make sense. And if anything, it would actually work against what we're trying to solve, which was this problem with the situation like we have with the homophobic preacher last summer. So I, I think it would make it worse. Um, I don't think that we're going to get any sort of improved recommendation back from staff on that. Um, and essentially, without a timeline back, um, to me, this just kind of sends its report into the into the atmosphere. Um, I would far rather that council had just taken a decision and voted for this, which is what I would favor, um, because I talked to a lot of West End residents and I did hear a lot of support for it um, or voted against it. But sending it back to me is just not taking action. Uh, but under the current laws and the current rules are in place. Wouldn't that street preacher, I mean, did he have a busking license to do that? Would he not have been able to, could the city have not have shut him down anyway? 
he did not have a license. So why would we need a new law if under the existing laws he could have been shut down? So he cannot be shut down under the existing laws because he was protesting. He was not Mm. performing. He was protesting. So he was exercising his right to protest. So technically anybody could say that, couldn't they? If you're a busker, you want to set up and, and you're busking. But if you say it's a busking, a protest, then you wouldn't you wouldn't have to adhere to those laws anyway. I think the buskers are pretty well defined. Um, you know, people know them. They love them. They entertain. Um, you know, they, they sing, they play a guitar. You know, you've got jugglers and, and other folks. So um, I think there's a pretty clear distinction between the two. All right. So So nothing will change, it looks like, then for the foreseeable future. No, sadly. I mean, we're heading into summertime now, and typically when people get out and about and get outside, this is when you see these situations come up. So um, it's, it's, it's a bit of an irony to me that people were criticizing the city and the VPD for not being able to take additional steps, and they're you know hamstrung by not having tools to do it, and yet council chose not to put those uh, an option in place. It wasn't a perfect or a foolproof option, but it did provide a tool that we don't have right now. And I think that we need to stand up any time we see hate um, and try to implement progressive change. All right, Councillor, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. Have a good afternoon. Well, what is happening with Metro Vancouver real estate? You've likely heard the stories. Bidding wars now a normal occurrence. The high-end housing market being hit as well. Offers being put in and accepted offers of hundreds of thousands of dollars above the asking price. Joining me to talk a bit more about this is Mazda Stenner, a Vancouver real estate agent. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill, for having me. A pleasure to be on air with you. It's just such a, I think for, for anybody looking at this, the numbers just seem so outrageous and, and off the charts. So what is fueling all of these bidding wars and these well above asking uh, offers? Well, I think that the shifting housing needs during the pandemic and historically low interest rates have been the key drivers of demand in our real estate market for the past six months. Um, with home sales activity well above our average January sales, the supply of home for sale is just not able to keep up with the pace. Uh, this is what is causing the increased competition amongst home buyers and upward pressure on prices. Um, just to kind of, I guess, give you an idea, the um, Home Price Index Composite Benchmark in Metro Vancouver for all residential properties uh, in the month of January is about a million fifty-six six hundred. This is about a five point five percent increase compared to January twenty twenty, and by about point nine percent increase compared to December twenty twenty. And the sales for detached homes in January twenty twenty-one reached about. 740 sales, which is a 68.6% increase from 439 detached sales recorded in January 2020 last year. Hmm. So this brings the benchmark of detached homes to about a million fifty six eight hundred. This represents about a 10.8% increase from January 2020 last year and 1.4% increase compared to December. And same thing, of course, for the attached. So low interest rates, not enough of supply out there is the driving factors of all these crazy multiple offers. Uh, who's buying them, though? When you look at a house, and in Vancouver, it's often a house that is referred to as a teardown, uh, something that needs a complete renovation. It's being listed. I know there was one on the west side that was listed, uh, I think, at $1.9 million, went for 2.5. Who's buying those? 
Um, mostly I have experience with just local buyers because of the low interest rates. People who have purchased properties years before, uh, they're definitely in the right position with the pandemic. You know, they want to make a change and they can certainly upgrade because there's value and equity in their homes. So some of them are refinancing and helping their kids get into the market. And there's, of course, a lot of first time home buyers that are trying to take advantage of these you know, uh, low interest rates trying to get in. So really the local market, and again, it's all about supply and demand. So if we don't have enough supply out there and there's pent up demand, especially from last year as well, and just the changes with the pandemic, these are all just driving factors. And of course, we don't have enough supply to begin with. And uh, in terms of production, things had shut down last year, slowed down. That's going to keep the increase in pent up demand for buyers to want to purchase homes in Vancouver. What's it like then when uh, you're showing a property or when there's a house that goes on the market and there's all this attention to it? And given we're still doing COVID protocols, what's it like? Well, I have to say I'm starting to see, and this is a general indication market is picking up. When you look at MLS and a property is listed, uh, especially in the west side, I specialize out here. And you look at the realtor market and they say, you know, they're doing showings and it's going to be offers on Monday back to the same trend as we saw a few years back. Um, So you really have to be on the ball, make sure that you're prepared for these multiple offers. You're getting in appointments. It's not an open house anymore, so you can't just walk in. And these time slots, I mean, with the protocol for the pandemic, making sure that, you know, we're wearing masks and following the social distancing, making sure everyone's safe, it does make it a little bit more challenging. So there could be times you could miss out on a property if you can't get in at a time slot that they actually are showing it. It's very competitive out there, very competitive. Uh, We know that oftentimes... Uh, real estate will be priced lower to try and kind of whip up that frenzy to get people and to get that over asking offer. Is that what we're seeing here in these cases in in these single family homes? Are they being listed lower knowing that they're going to go for way above the asking price? I think in some cases it's a strategy that, you know, they list it at a uh, a price maybe a little below assessed value. But I think the demand there right now is so great for detached properties that I don't think it matters what they list it at. If it's a great location, the property is, um, it represents itself well. Uh, There's quite a few buyers on the sideline that are willing to take that uh, opportunity to jump on it and get into the market. Are we seeing this anywhere else as far as is it specifically this kind of uh, we're seeing this activity for single for detached homes? Are we seeing it all uh, as far as townhomes or condos or what are we seeing there? Yeah, so I think all in all, um, our numbers and sales have gone up. And that, again, has to do with more or less supply and demand. But the detached market definitely, after the pandemic and people living in smaller spaces, being quarantined, they've kind of, they're looking at things a little differently. And also with their jobs as people, uh, their positions have changed, they no longer have to go to a location, they can remotely work from home. This has made them think twice on the space that they reside in. And if they have a family, would you live in a, in a two-bedroom condo downtown or would you go further east where, you know, your kids could have a yard and they're not in your hair? You can work from your home and your office. Uh, you have 
space. So that's kind of what I'm seeing happen. Uh, people who had condos in the lower mainland downtown, they're kind of moving east um, to get bigger properties. And the detached market is like this all the way out to Chilliwack, from my understanding. And I've had clients call me out there. Properties there are as well going in multiple offers for townhomes and as well as detached uh, properties. It's interesting because we've talked about that anecdotally uh, since uh, the pandemic kind of started, or I, I guess a few months into it when people realized, hey, wait a minute, maybe I will be able to work from home. Uh, even if it's not permanent working from home, I'll be able to do a few days a week and I, I could, could do this commute two days a week, say, and that people were moving out. But it, but it was anecdotal at that point, but it seems like there is more and more evidence of that. Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing more and more of it as space becomes a big issue. Uh, again, you know, working from home, you need a bit of peace and quiet. We've seen quite a few Zoom calls where your kids are walking into rooms and parents are trying to hush them out or kick them out. Um, you know, so I think space is a big thing and the pandemic has brought that to us. Um, again, and being in confined in smaller spaces when we had to, you know, quarantine for the two-week period back in uh, March, April last year, people realized, you know, maybe staying inside, uh, you know, in small spaces, some of them kind of ended up it, it just being a little overwhelmed with the same amount of spacing it every day in and out when they couldn't go outside. So those are all changes for people. When you can't control and change other things in your environment, I mean, things that you can change is your living space, and that's enough to kind of give you a, a, a start or a fresh start in, in your life. Um, so definitely a lot of shifting, and the pandemic, like I said, has, has a big factor into where downtown used to be a very hot place uh, for people to purchase property, investment property. Uh, The condo market is still doing okay, but I have to say the uh, detached market is taking a different uh, level of, I guess, prices going up. And that's all to do with, again, space and being able to roam around in your own home and not having to be in close proximity with other people. In the event there was ever another pandemic, uh, people are kind of thinking down the road in, in, in future that if they were to have a detached home or a townhouse, the likability of them running into someone else is a lot less and contamination infection control is a lot less than if you were to be in, let's say, a high rise that has, you know, over 100 units and you've got two or three elevators waiting in to, uh, you know, go to your unit or come down, which sometimes could take a while. And there's always that worry of maybe possibly coming across someone who is infected and you could possibly catch right. the virus. So. There's, yeah. there's got to be a ceiling, though, when we look at the, the prices in Vancouver. And I know people in the rest of the country look at us and think we're a bit crazy in that. At what point does, does somebody say, I'm not going to spend two million dollars or two and a half million dollars on a teardown house? Um, I would say at the point where they can't afford it. <laughs> I hate to say this, but, you know, there's a lot of wealth in Vancouver. Um, again, it has to do with real estate. When people purchase back when and there's equity in their home, easily they can take that equity. They can refinance their homes and buy other properties. And in Vancouver, we know that out of the all other provinces, we have something that the others don't have, and that's the weather. Um, and everybody starts east and always end up to the west. Uh, We have a lot going for us. It's a beautiful city. And like I said, there's just not enough land here for us to develop. And the closer you are to the water, of course, there's always going to be that demand. Uh, But I don't see prices here really in my professional opinion coming down per se, because if we were to compare ourselves to places such as Hong Kong, New York, if you look at the prices of condos there, um, I mean, there are people there, they work in the same kind of, you know, different economies, but at some point, people thought, when is 
it's too expensive to buy a one-bedroom condo. Uh, like I said, when people can afford it, I, I don't think that there is a limit to it. All right. Uh, interesting times uh, happening and looking at, at the Vancouver real estate market. Mazda, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for being with us. Well, there have been a lot of concerns about the hotel quarantine policy that is now in place in this country if you are somebody arriving in Canada on an international flight. And the latest concern has to do with charges of sexual assault, break and enter and harassment. And these are alleged to have happened at the Sheraton Montreal Airport Hotel, one of the quarantine sites in Canada. Joining me now to talk a bit more about this is Michelle Rumpel-Garner, Conservative Health as well as the MP for Calgary Nose Hill. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me. Uh, I know you've raised many questions about the policy, asked for evidence to be provided as to why this policy was brought in. Does it, in fact, make people safer? What are your thoughts now that we have these allegations of sexual assault? Well, I'll start by saying very clearly that, you know, we were asking for border control measures on our side of the aisle at the start of the pandemic in January last year. Those didn't come into place until March of 2020. So, you know, there was a window that was missed. Um, And since then, we've been asking for things like, you know, testing on arrival to combine with at-home quarantine, uh, measures that we want to keep Canadians safe. But to your point, we, we know that the Liberals haven't been able to provide data that shows that this policy uh, is better than that particular um, method. And these reports of sexual assault are um, troubling is perhaps not a strong enough word. Uh, I, I, we did ask questions to the government today in question period. Uh, they didn't really acknowledge it. Um, but no woman should, no one should be faced with uh, sexual violence. Uh, we have called for the program to be suspended uh, given what happened. Uh, I've received today just dozens of calls to my constituency office in Calgary of people uh, that that have a lot of worries about going into one of these hotels now, personal safety, uh, as well as concerns for loved ones that might have to be faced with a stay there. So uh, I I do think that the federal government should suspend this, uh, given that they haven't been able to show that they can keep people safe under their duty of care. Uh, when you questioned this, and I didn't see question period today, when you questioned this or when the questions were put forward, did you get any even acknowledgement that this has happened? I mean, charges have been laid in at least one case. Did you get any acknowledgement? That's right. Uh, Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland uh, responded to our party leader's question several times by saying, essentially, people shouldn't be traveling right now. I followed up with a question asking if uh, you know, they were implying that somehow the victim deserved this uh, because they traveled. I think that's a fair question. And the response that I got from the health minister was women deserve safety or protection from sexual violence, but, and there should be no but. She actually said but. Hmm. Um, so, you know, everything aside, um, it, it, the federal government has a duty of care in these facilities. Um, you know, the, the reports around this this incident um, the uh, survivor said that, uh, you know, the information she was given, and it's right in that brochure that she was given, was that there there wouldn't be locks on the door, um, that there would be security. That didn't happen. Um, so there, there, 
if the federal government can't keep people safe in these facilities and they don't have evidence that it is going to be more effective in preventing the spread of COVID than on arrival testing combined with at home quarantine, then like it needs to be suspended across party lines. Um, nobody should be facing, uh, you know, concerns about sexual assault in a, in a facility like this. Uh, I wanted to play for you uh, just a, a quick piece of audio. This is Sean O'Shea, who's a global news reporter, because in addition to these allegations of sex- sexual assault, which are very serious, there have also been cases at the Pearson Airport in Ontario of people simply not going to the hotels for whatever reason. But police admit that on Monday and Tuesday, some travellers did refuse. Uh, The federal government has now put in place quarantine measures that are designed to protect our community. Uh, It's unfortunate uh, that uh, that what you're describing might be occurring. Some on social media saying they'd rather pay a fine than obey. And I hope that people do abide by um, the the new stricter guidelines when it comes to um, your responsibilities. But if someone doesn't choose to follow the rules here at Pearson Airport, police won't stop them. Enforcement is entirely in the hands of the Public Health Agency of Canada, which declined our request for an on-camera interview. So it sounds like in some cases, people are simply getting the fine or, or walking out of the airport. How do you respond to that? Well, I think the federal government has a lot of explaining to do. The uh, Public Health Agency of Canada was responsible for providing training to a uh, quarantine enforcement uh, officer in in Ontario that has been charged with uh, assault and extortion of uh, people that he was in in charge of uh, monitoring. Um, I, I, I don't think that people should be forced to choose between safety and security um, and public health outcomes. Uh, the government should be facilitating programs that do both. I, again, I, I strongly believe that, that um, you know, at-home quarantine can be um, monitored and, and maintained. People should be complying with quarantine orders. Now is not the time for leisure travel. Um, but this is also why we've been calling for over six months for the federal government to uh, institute on-arrival testing at every port of entry in Canada. This makes sense, right? So, uh, you know, I, I, I think the, the, and again, this is like, what, this is 12 months too late, what they're doing, right? Um, so so the, the program is faulty. Um, we have the tools to protect Canadians, like rapid tests, um, like, like, like you know, at-home quarantine. But, um, you know, I was asking at our health committee for data on the compliance levels with at-home quarantine, and they wouldn't, the, the federal government wouldn't furnish us that. So it's just, um, I'm very concerned. And I, I think it's very um, telling that the government wouldn't respond to requests for interviews. I don't know what they have to hide, uh, but they've got to get this right very quickly. Do you think it would be a valid argument if somebody is arriving in Canada, and again, we know we're not supposed to be traveling, there are people who are still traveling for essential reasons, but if somebody arrives, sees stories of sexual assault allegations at these hotels, to make that argument, saying, I'm going to go home and quarantine, you can't force me to go into a scenario where clearly it's not safe. I think this will be a question for the courts. I think it will be a question for the courts. And it's unfortunate that the federal government has bungled this so badly that they're uh, causing fear and situations of, you know, sexual assault uh, for, for Canadians who are returning to Canada. 
um, but also not showing the public that they've done everything that they can and used every tool at their disposal uh, to um, ensure that variants don't enter the country. Uh, I mean, we've heard uh, supposedly this policy came forward to stop the spread of variants, and we know that variants are spreading in Canada right now. So um, I, I, I think that uh, the federal government has a lot of explaining to do. The answers that they gave to us in question period today were troubling. Um, as a woman, um, I'm, I, you know, I was just thinking today about, you know, if somebody had experienced this, what they would think uh, for the federal government to say it came pretty close to victim blaming. And uh, the federal government has a duty of care here that um, they clearly haven't carried out. All right. Uh, Michelle Rempel-Garner, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you again so much for your time. Take care. Well, it seems like during this pandemic, we have been talking a lot, although it has tapered off. But in the first few months, we talked a lot about outdoor spaces where people could enjoy an alcoholic beverage, whether it was a city of Vancouver Beach, a park in part of Metro Vancouver, places for people to get outside when we were still encouraged to meet and gather to enjoy that, making sure that we were still having social connections, but still being safe with the pandemic as well. Well, yesterday, at Vancouver City Council, one of the other issues discussed was a temporary parklet in the downtown east side and that to be used as a drinking place for people who are already in a program that deals with severe alcohol use disorders and to make sure that place would be a COVID safe drinking place. Once the parklet is live, if it's supported and approved, I will need to reallocate Um, hours and uh, human power to focus on this area. And that is the trick of the BIA. You know, we we manage 44 city square blocks. This one block takes extra attention away from every other part. That is Theodora Lamb, Executive Director of the Strathcona Business Improvement Association, in a presentation to Vancouver Council yesterday. And she joins us on the line now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, the project has been approved. Can you talk a little bit about this? Because I think at first glance, people might not get all of the, the different kind of moving parts that go with this and the people that support it. I know you and, and your group support this. Talk a bit about the background, if you can. Absolutely. Yeah, there, you're right. There are a lot of moving parts to this, uh, this story, which began about nine months ago. Um, COVID had hit. We saw SROs in the downtown east side uh, restrict the number of people allowed inside, bars shut down, restaurants shut down. Um, you'll, you'll recall that we haven't had access to Oppenheimer Park and other public spaces uh, in Strathcona and the downtown east side. And what was happening uh, was on a particular stretch of East Hastings, 700, 800 blocks specifically, um, we saw more and more convening at the two public bus stops on the north and south side uh, for the purposes of public drinking. And um, it just attracted more and more folks, and we saw an increase in street activity, street disorder. Um, We even had some violent instances. You'll recall last July 1st, there was a stabbing at one of the bus stops. Um, and my business members, uh, members of the Strathcona BIA, sounded the alarm and said, this is, this is enough. We cannot, we cannot deal with this anymore. So then, you know, enter in the Strathcona BIA into a conversation with the city of Vancouver and VPD. And you fast forward nine months later to now, 
And after tremendous trial and error and hard conversations and new stakeholders, including Vandu and PHS, uh, coming to the table, we've landed on this pilot project. It is not perfect by any stretch, but I, I'm hoping, I'm optimistic, we're going to see not only a difference on that stretch of East Hastings for the businesses and the citizens and residents, but uh, we'll have some uh, hopefully healthy um, optimistic uh, outcomes uh, for the folks who, you know, need spaces uh, to drink and to be safe. Uh, is it your understanding then that with this being approved for this parklet to, for, to be in front of uh, a place called the Drinker's Lounge on Princess Avenue, uh, this is the, the managed alcohol program. Is it only people, though, that are in that program that will be allowed to go to this parklet and drink alcoholic beverages or will it be open to the community? Well, it's a parklet, so it becomes a public space. It becomes like a park. So my assumption is that um, anyone who wants to seek community and, and needs that support will be able to access it. The key here, the difference between this parklet and two bus stops on these Hastings is this has parameters around it. It has support. It has medical um, attention. It has social service resources. It can have more attention, I hope, from the VPD and also from my community patrol team. So there's, you know, it has boundaries to it versus we had no control over the activity that was happening on Hastings. And how do you know then that people will move from the bus stops to the parklet, that it won't become a scenario where I, I would imagine it'll be popular in that most of the public spaces that have opened up in the pandemic, when the weather was nicer, uh, they became very popular. How do you know then people will move from the bus stop to the parklet or, or that they'll add to the parklet in addition to staying at the bus stop? Well, that's where the hard work comes in. So now that it's been approved, we now have to build out the planning and the work and institute all of the practices that encourage and invite folks to move from the bus stops to this parklet. And I can tell you, you know, if I went up to these folks and asked them to move, they're not going to listen to me. We need to work with community organizations and stewards of the community and peers to, to create that invitation. And we need to also work with placemaking tactics like signage and any means possible to get folks to feel invited into this space, to know they're safe there, and then to address the issues um, and the placemaking on East Hastings itself. And uh, there was talk about moving the bus stops. Why, what was the reluctance to doing that? Um, well, you know, I, I still believe that uh, those bus stop shelters can't stay in the long term. That doesn't mean to have them removed, but the Strathcona BIA is interested in seeing them moved further west. I think their proximity to uh, the liquor store right there makes it too much of a temptation to sit down and stay. Um, this is not going to be a popular opinion, though. I, I also don't think there's been probably enough consultation with the community at large. But as of this moment, the Strathcona BIA believes that those bus stops um, are still going to be a, a source of conflict and tension. Uh, because it does seem, like you said, it, it doesn't seem like once this is open, and, and I, I didn't, I don't recall exactly when it is set to open, but it, it does seem like that might be a problem or, or a challenge is getting people to move and to say, I know you've been sitting at this bus stop for however many weeks or months, and this has become a gathering place, but we need that place to now move. It, it's the biggest challenge we're dealing with human beings who have, you know, have relied on this space in some cases pre-COVID for many years. Um, I, I certainly, as part of the Business Improvement Association, have learned a lot more about the nature of alcoholism and, and addiction. Um, 
I think one of the things that uh, gives me a lot of hope and optimism is our partners in this, Vendu and PHS and others, um, have really taken the time to speak with the folks who rely on the, that bus stop space. And one of the outcomes of that is, you know, the folks who are there, uh, they don't necessarily want to be taken up a bus stop area either, right? They just need a safe space to be in. So this is, like I said, this is where the hard work uh, begins. It's not without risk. I would love to tell you that you and I can speak three months from now, and I can tell you it's a you know, raging success, but we'll have to see. Do you think it would would make things better as well? You mentioned off the top that, uh, you know, Oppenheimer is still behind fencing. Uh, the remedi- remediation work there is still ongoing. I know there's been ongoing concerns about construction at Pigeon Park and it not being accessible to people. We're talking about a part of the city where there isn't a ton of green space. Park space is very, very limited. Would it not be better if we also worked at getting more open spaces where perhaps people could enjoy alcoholic beverages and not to have to, I mean, this seems like it's a good first step, but then not have to tell everybody to do this legally, you have to go to a parklet. I, I think uh, I think you can go without saying, yeah, that we, we absolutely miss our public spaces and green spaces in Strathcona. Um, we've been in touch recently with Parks Board Management. There's no timeline yet on when Oppenheimer will open up. And as you know, we are currently witnessing and watching a decampment of Strathcona Park. So there's a lot happening in our district right now, and there aren't a lot of options for people to turn to. I think with the vaccinations moving through the community and through the general public, I hope to see uh, more loosening of these spaces, but we'll have to wait and see. At the end of the day, it feels like, from my perspective, it's often the businesses who have to come to the table, sound the alarm, come up with the solutions, and, and sort of bear the brunt of a lot of the work and effort to make sure everyone involved um, gets the help and, and has the safe outcomes that they need. So this is just yet another story where the businesses have come to the table and said, okay, we'll roll up our sleeves. We're part of this. We're here too. Uh, and do all of the businesses in your association, are they on board and in favor of this? No, no. We definitely have some business members who've reached out to me and said, you know, I don't understand um, this feels, well, like just I said, this feels yet like another solution by the city to to expect the businesses to carry the burden um, of, uh, you know, of issues and challenges that weren't their making. Um, it's a larger part of the story of what it means to operate a business in Strathcona and, uh, and in the downtown east side. Um, there's a lot of frustration, and I and, and my heart goes out to these business members every single day. We'll continue to show up for them, to partner where we can, and hopefully to be able to try something new like this that actually lands in um, positive outcomes for everyone. All right. Uh, Theodora, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Thank you.